Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, a podcast on the craft and vocation of theology. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. Apologies for the longer-than-expected wait time between the last episode and this one. The episode I was editing for June had some significant and unexpected technical issues, so it was taking much longer to edit. That episode with John Cavadini will still be out sometime in the near future, but I'm not sure when yet. In today's episode, I speak with John Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout from University of California Press. John and I talk about how his early interest in physics and the mysteries of the universe drew him to study theology, how his personal experience with burnout led to his research on it, and where he now situates himself with respect to theology. As I mentioned in the last episode, if you feel moved to support the podcast on a monthly basis, I've restarted the Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash dailytheopod. If you would be interested in a one-time gift for support, I'm trying out the Ko-Fi website, coffee website. I'm not sure actually how you pronounce it, but you would find it at ko-fi.com slash dailytheopod. The premise is you're buying someone a cup of coffee to support their work. I'm actually more of a tea person, with my two favorites being Any Good Earl Grey or the Colonial Boohee from Oliver Pluff and Company. So, if you want to buy me a tea to sip while I edit episodes, go to ko-fi.com slash dailytheopod. Thanks for listening. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking to Jonathan Malesic. Uh, John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to be on the Resurrected Daily Theology Podcast. <laughs> yeah, happy to bring it back. I actually want to talk to you on the podcast for several years before I went on hiatus and contacted you pretty quickly after coming back from hiatus. And I always, you know, always start with you know, as a core question. How did you get interested in or get into doing theology? It was very much by accident. Well, I went to Catholic high school, all boys Catholic high school in Buffalo, New York, sponsored by the Christian Brothers. And I hated religion class. <laughs> uh, religion and health were my two favorite or two least favorite classes. And I was, I really liked math and science. And I went from high school to the Catholic University of America, but I, not primarily for theological mm. reasons, I wanted to study physics. And so I did that, you know, my first year. And then in my second year, I had my first religion class. And it was so different from. Mm the religion classes I'd had in high school, the questions were so much more interesting. The conversations were so much better. It was, you know, more, yeah, it was more about reasoning and discussion and reading interesting texts and less about catechism. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of took more and more religion classes until I realized that I wanted to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. So I applied to graduate school and, you know, went straight from there, from college to graduate school at the University of Virginia. And so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't at all something I intended. I don't know, probably very few 16-year-olds think I'm going to be a theologian when I grow <laughs> up. Uh, and certainly that was the case for me. So one thing that I often encounter with students who come to a Catholic college out of Catholic high schools is their expectation is that college theology classes are going to be easy because they've already had four years of Catholic high school. And like, it's just going to be a repeat. And I actually imagine for a lot of them, it kind of ends up being just a repeat, you know, for better or for worse. So like, as you talk about the college courses being more, you know, I don't know, challenging, thought-provoking, you know, what, what was it about it that like drew you and got you to, it sounds like you were almost 
like accidentally fell into being a major because you just kept taking courses. So, right. I think that what drew me to theology was actually very much the same as what drew me to physics originally. Hmm. So I wanted to be a physics major after I read this book called The Dancing Wu Li Masters by hmm. Gary Zukav, who later went on to become one of Oprah's gurus. Uh, <laughs> this was in, he wrote this book in his pre-guru phase of his career. And it was about how particle physics had these strange resonances with Asian religions. So Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, basically. And that that just seemed really interesting to me. I think on for two reasons. You know, particle physics seemed like, you know, I mean, they're called the elementary particles. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's the most elemental study of the physical universe. It, you're getting down to real fundamentals there. But it also had this strange this strange aspect of it that was not completely rational. So you mm -hmm. couldn't rationally understand how the universe worked, but you also came up against these limits. And when you bump into those limits, you know, things start getting, th things start getting mystical or at any rate, not completely rational. And I think that that, that similar sense for I want to know what is most fundamental motivated me to study religion and theology. But instead of trying to get at what was most fundamental in the physical universe, it was sort of like what was most fundamental to the human experience of the world. And there was still that interplay between the rational and the not rational mm -hmm. uh, in theology that, you know, drew me originally to physics. And then, of course, like you get to your first physics classes and like they, you know, that that, you know, not rational part, it just is never addressed. <laughs> um, it's like, no, actually, we we know a lot about how these things work. It's not about samsara or something like that you know it's it's just about you know these math formulas that you need to know <laughs> yeah there's a sort of a basic set of things you have to be able to do and i expect especially early on in physics there that's maybe more of a concern if that makes sense yeah uh, totally well and like you know the the whole point in in undergraduate physics classes and math classes is to get the answer to mm -hmm. say, all right, what does this electron do in this, in these circumstances? And there at the undergraduate level, there always, there always is an answer. And the cool thing about, well, any humanities discipline, I think, is that there is not an, there's not a clear final answer. And that's true often even at the undergraduate level you know mm -hmm. i took a whole class on the problem of evil and it's not like they're oh well this is the problem of evil and well you know week 14 ta-da here's the solution and now <laughs> you can go and know that solution you know it's yeah. the the constant exploration and debate of the question is a big part of the point of doing mm -hmm. it i teach a undergraduate gen ed course on religious ethics of war and peace and the title of the course is Who Would Jesus Kill? And I, I stole this title from Mark Allman's book, which is the book we use in class. And, you know, students see it, you know, on the poster and all those things are like, oh, that sounds interesting. So they take it. And then like, you know, the first week or so someone asks, like, you know, who would Jesus kill? I was like, you got to wait, right? Like if I tell you <laughs> the first day, you're not going to stick around, you know, you're like we got to <laughs> we got to hang out a little bit. And then I I over time, I realized, like, I will reserve the last day. And I will let them think this is the day we're going to answer the question. And then I ask them what they think. And they give me like often about a dozen like good, thoughtful responses based on what we read. And somewhere in the course of that day, some student, it dawns on them that like they're not going to get 
the answer. And, you know, sometimes they're really annoyed by this and it shows up in the evals. It's like, I wanted to know the answer to this question. And I always tell them the question in the title of the course, it's the trick, it's the clickbait, right? Like it's to get you to think through what we're actually going to do. I don't know. Sometimes it works. Yeah. No, totally. And that kind of comes back to your point about the students who tell you on the first day of class, oh, hey, you know, Dr. Oki, I, I've been in Catholic school my whole life. I really know this stuff. I know I'm going to do great in this class. And I know that when I have heard those students, I have never told them this <laughs> out loud. <laughs> but I think to myself, uh-oh, you know, like this is actually a real impediment because all that stuff, all that knowledge, th- that's going to be useful. And uh, depending on the high school that they went to, sure. I mean, I don't know if I had a student who went to like Gonzaga High School in Washington, D.C., I'd feel pretty confident that they mm-hmm. that they had a good knowledge. but. Yeah, a lot of times all of that knowledge, while valuable, can also be an impediment to, mm-hmm. you know, the the way that theology at, at the undergraduate and higher levels likes to, you know, if I can use a probably overused word, problematize a lot of those answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, often because I'll have a mix of students and I'll have some who like I'll have, you know, sort of. Catholic high school students. I have a fair number of evangelical students. And then I also always have students who are just not religious. And we'll be talking about scripture. And like the first day we talk about scripture, the non-religious students or the non-Christian students will often feel like they're at a disadvantage. And they'll say like, I, I haven't read this stuff before. I don't know. And I'll, I'll say to them, but I'll also try to show them, you know, over the course of the week or a couple of weeks or the semester that there are advantages to coming in with nothing in this regard because you don't have prior commitments in this. This is new material. You can kind of, you know, play with it a little bit. And often sometimes also, if you don't have a certain like particular attachment to it, that can be something to, to work with. Not that's the ideal student per se, but that it's not an inherent, you know, impediment to doing well in a course. And it, it just, I don't know, it takes some convincing sometimes. In the same way, I think for some of the students who come in with a lot of background knowledge, it takes some convincing to get them to see, like, I need, I need to be open to a new lens or a new approach or, you know, a different way of looking at this as a conversation partner. Yeah, and that, that's one of the first, I think it is the first lesson in Zukav's book, The Dancing Wooly Masters, is coming at these problems with beginner's mind one of the cool things about that book that I didn't get the first time I read it was every chapter is chapter one. So like a chapter (laughs) ends and the next chapter is one, you know, you're always, you're always relearning this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you want to approach, whether it's theology or I mean, probably history or uh, certainly modern physics, you got to let go of a lot of, preconceptions. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Did you just out of curiosity when you were finishing up in college and so you ended up double majoring in physics and really, okay. Did you consider going on for physics instead of religious studies or had that ever been part of your plan or did the theology and religion just completely supplant that for you? That was the plan for a while. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I had before I realized that I really needed to you know, pursue religion and theology a little bit more seriously. I, I definitely gave strong consideration to going to graduate school in physics. But yeah, I mean, it it just that that eventually that that desire eventually fell away. Mm hmm. I, I started college as a philosophy and a math major. Uh-huh. And I, I originally, I'd wanted to be a math professor was actually my original goal. And I, I finished the major and I had a math job. Actually, I was an actuary for a couple of years, but I, in my study, in, in, in my math classes, I hit, there was a course in like, it was my junior, senior year. I think it was my junior year. It was abstract algebra. And it was the first time in my entire life that I could not make sense of something. And 
I had always been like, I had like a, a natural math gift. I never had to work at it, which was great for me. Like I'm not tuning my own horn. It was just, it was like, it was just a thing that I saw and understood. But then when I got to abstract algebra, I, I didn't see it. And I had also learned no skills for like working through something I didn't understand in math. And so the whole semester was just like beating my head and like trying to get help. And I just didn't have it. Um, and that was when I was like, all right, like <laughs> I, I hit a wall, right? I hit a wall. I got to pivot. And I did. Yeah. I had yeah. a pretty similar experience. And of course in, in physics, the math that you're using the most is calculus and you just get to like more and more bizarre forms of calculus <laughs> and you know, it was calculus. Yeah, it was super easy to me. My first couple of years of college, I barely studied, had very little difficulty getting A's in those classes. And then I had to take, it was a graduate level mechanical engineering class mm. called applied math, which sounds, <laughs> sounds simple and straightforward. It was, I mean, I just... I couldn't, yeah, I just couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, right, like the math just got too hard mm -hmm. for me. I couldn't go any further. Though I kind of wonder if, you know, what the difference is between the math being too hard for you and just not having the the will to work mm -hmm. through these problems. Yeah, because probably there are a lot of people who, you know, are uh, who. Yeah, I'm sure that there are a lot of physicists who are not like just total, you know, math wizards, but mm -hmm. they just really want it. And they're like, well, I'm going to patiently work through this incredibly difficult problem until I get the answer. And I, <laughs> I would just give up. Yeah, I think it was a challenge to my identity. Ultimately, is probably what was going on in my head. Which was, but I'm good at math, right? Like I was finding something about myself that I was having trouble, you know, integrating and I didn't, yeah, I just didn't know what to integrating, do. Integrating, did you say? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I worked in a <laughs> Like in <joke>. calculus? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit, every time I see a reference to like integral development or integral <laughs> ecology or whatever it is, like I see that symbol in my head and I that will probably be with me forever. Yeah. So, so you went on to UVA to do your PhD. And what was your, I don't know, what was your focus? What was your, you know, main interest once you were sort of forced to, you know, narrow things down? Well, that was the thing. I wasn't forced to narrow things mm. down. I don't know how the PhD program there is kind of divvied up now. But at the time, I was in officially a program called, I think, Philosophical Theology. Mm. And there were no required, there was no set curriculum. Hmm. You just took whatever. You just took classes until they said stop. And so, you know, my, and I mean, one semester, I think one semester there were three classes on the Trinity. Like, you know, I, I didn't take all three. I took two of them. <laughs> Even better. Right, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the program, it just was, you know, from one perspective, it was not particularly well organized. And so, you know, that may have contributed to my, you know, difficulty and kind of labeling myself when I went on the job market at the end. But I mean, I also look back on that lack of real order and organization in the program. And I think that, that I'm, I think I'm kind of drawing on that now. Like there, I, I did not ever get the sense in graduate school, like, oh, well, that's a question that you know, the ethics people answer and, and you can't mm -hmm. answer it. It was always, you know, all these questions that I was addressing in my different classes all kind of bore on each other. And so, you know, I wrote this weird dissertation on, 
it was on secrecy and my main sources were Kierkegaard and of course what goes better with Kierkegaard than fourth century Christian initiation rites um <laughs> and like you know, man, I saw I believed that there was a connection and I don't think I made a good case for that in the dissertation but yeah I mean it was just like it was okay to pursue weird questions that drew on sources that didn't seem to have a lot to do with each other. Like that mm-hmm. was totally allowed in graduate school. And yeah, I mean, I guess I'm grateful for that, you know, yeah. um, because you know, the way my career has ended up. Yeah. I mean, I'm the only kind of person who can tell myself, you know, what questions to pursue or not. Yeah. So part of why I want to talk to you is, so you you do a PhD in in theology. You go on. You got a tenure track job. So you were at King's College in Pennsylvania, right? Yes. And you you got the brass ring, right? You got tenure, you know, and you were publishing and you were teaching. And then I remember, I think it was 2016. You and I were at a writing workshop in Collegeville, and you were like, "Yep, I'm leaving it all behind." <laughs> And I, you know, I was a couple years away from applying for tenure and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I know you, you talk about this kind of throughout your book on the end of burnout. But what happened? Like, what was the the story for you? Yeah, I mean, the the story is, yes, I like you said, I got exactly what I wanted. And the problem with that is that, you know, I went into academia with sky high ideals for what this career was going to be. You know, I wanted to be like my own professors. They seemed to live the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believed that these men and women just lived for the questions that mattered so much to me. And they just spent all day <laughs> thinking about them and talking with students about them and so on. And, you know, wearing tweed. So I, I did I did my best to imitate them and, and I kinda expected that the import and the interesting character of these questions would be obvious to my students. And of course they weren't, because the students were not exactly like me. And they you know, they had their own interests and their own questions that mattered to them. And you know, so one part of it is that I struggled in the classroom with, you know, the indifference that you often get. Students don't come to college excited about theology. This is, I'm sure, a shock to your listeners. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, pedagogically, you have to, you kind of, it's like you had said about the the clickbait course title. Like, pedagogy is just tricking people. Um <laughs> You know, you just try to trick people into doing something that they don't want to do. So you trick yeah. them into caring more about theology. And sometimes it works. So that was one one point, you know, so in, in the classroom where my ideals for the work and the reality of it really diverged. But another just had to do with the you know, the day, well, not even just day to day, but I mean, year to year, you know, the way that small private colleges are constantly under pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're constantly under financial pressure. They're sometimes under accreditation pressure. You know, there are internal pressures over things like the curriculum and your workload becomes sometimes hard to bear. And so those pressures also really got to me and I wasn't well-equipped to deal with them and to try to, you know, be a good teacher and, and so on. I knew that there was a problem when I just couldn't, I had the hardest time getting out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. and I would blow up at people in meetings. I would take small slights or small obstacles as an, an an existential threat you know to my being 
I mean, when you invest so much of who you are in your being a theology teacher, and then the students are not quite as interested as you wish they were, you know, a student asking, like, why why do I even need to take this class? You know, that becomes a personal insult. It, it calls mm-hmm. your whole being into question. And, I mean, it just became harder and harder to do the job. I was just persistently unhappy. I had a hard time just getting to work, dragging myself there. Course planning and preparation just became harder and harder. I mean, it was just incredibly unpleasant. And that went on for years. Eventually, my wife, who's also an academic, got a job in Dallas, Texas. And so, you know, when she got that job, I quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're like, I just, I just, you know, I wish that there were a way that I could keep doing this, but I can't figure it out. And yeah. this is a good opportunity just to to do something different. So you talk in your book about the idea of burnout and you you focus a lot, especially on this sort of three-part model of burnout exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness. But you also talk a lot about, and I I thought that this was particularly interesting, there's a personal dimension to burnout, which, I mean, you experienced in a very direct way. But there's also this sort of larger social and cultural dimension to burnout. And so there's this sort of sense in the U.S., or maybe the West more broadly, but at least the U.S., of this sort of heroic commitment to work and this demand for work. And I think about how often someone asks me, how are you doing? And part of my response is I'm very busy. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think about like how boring this response is and how little it actually communicates. But it, it does possibly just sort of feed into the sense of like, I need people to know that I'm, I'm working. I need people to know that I'm busy and by extension, important because of that. But something I was wondering, both in reading your book and in, in talking to you now is, and as I have said to you, all of my interviews on some level are me working my own things out. So take that for what it is. Do you think that your experience of burnout was, was that something that had you had different expectations going in might have been different or had the, like, had the conditions at King's been different, might have been different or do you think the sort of larger social cultural reality around work, especially the sort of larger social cultural view around being an academic was likely going to not force you down this path, but kind of like gently nudge you kind of usher you, I guess maybe down that way or. Yeah. I think that it was not inevitable. And I think that, you know, there's both because you know, burnout is, it's about this interaction and this gap between mm-hmm. your ideals and your job, your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And ideals are never totally just individual. You always mm-hmm. get them from somewhere else. You get them from your culture generally, but you do have some control over them. Mm-hmm. And I guess that the reason I know that I wouldn't have inevitably burned out is that I, you know, had plenty of colleagues at King's who didn't, who, mm-hmm. you know, uh, have kept on pretty happy in the job for years afterward. So I think that had I brought different ideals to it, that might have helped. If I had seen that an academic job, like the noun there is job, it is a job. <laughs> You know, you you have a schedule, you have a paycheck, you have, if not a boss exactly, you have their accountability structures. You have all of those job-like things. And I believe that if, you, if you're a little bit more aware of that day-to-day, then perhaps it becomes a bit easier to keep it from becoming your whole identity and taking over your life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if if conditions at King's had been a bit different, you know, perhaps so. Though the conditions at King's were, you know, they're pretty common yeah. um, across, certainly across small private colleges. And being at a, at a college with more resources doesn't totally 
get you off the hook, but there's a little bit more slack in the system. So Mm -hmm. when there's pressure, it's perhaps a bit more easy to deal with it. But, you know, I mean, people burn out at Williams and, you know, Harvard and and UT Austin and and all those other places too. So I think one of the things that I found challenging partly to reading your book and partly also just in reflecting on, you know, my own context and feelings and everything else is like the school I'm at is also like, like, like many others, you know, financial pressures and there's a demographic cliff coming and, you know, all these sorts of things that, you know, people think about as like the perils of higher ed and of Catholic higher ed. But I know a thing that I've been reflecting on this past year for myself is I realized I have these sort of three different things going on that are all tied together in ways that I didn't do a good job of distinguishing. And so one is, you know, there's the job side of things, which is the, like you said, like I have a schedule, I have a boss, you know, I have a salary, like I have, a, I have, I have a family I have to provide for a mortgage, that kind of stuff. Like there's those pieces of it. And I, I had, before I went back to grad school, I'd had a corporate job. Like I, I had worked as an actuarial analyst. I wore suits. I had a nine to five. I had a business Amex that I used for, you know, corporate track, like all those kinds of things. Like I I had a more stereotypical, very upper middle class, white collar, you know, job. So there's the job piece. There's the doing theology piece. There's the being a theologian piece, which for me is about this interest in a particular set of questions and ideas and texts and sort of ways of approaching those. And then there's this spiritual side of me. And how I got into theology as a discipline was working out my spiritual questions, but then those got really closely tied together, you know, like integrated with one another. And I think that can be integrated in a healthy way. I don't know that I did, but I think they can be, but then those also got tied up with the job. (laughs) And so now all of these things are kind of intermixed with one another. And so in thinking about this, you have this image that you use several times in the book of the stilts, and there, there's the ideals one has as one still, and there's the reality of the job as the other still. And when they you know, pull apart, you, you're going to collapse, right? And the higher or more intense those are, you know, the taller the stilts are, right? And so keeping them in line is more challenging in some respects. And so I think about this idea of for so many people that I know who do theology professionally, and they think of it as a vocation, And that carries with it this sort of these stakes, you know, that are different from I have to put food on the table stakes and I have to find a place to live kind of stakes. Not that those are not important, but the vocation stakes seems distinct or demanding in a particular way that I think makes this harder, I guess, because I should have a question with that. The question is like, sort of how do you think about vocation this idea of calling within this sort of larger landscape of the problem of burnout. I think we have to be pretty careful with the word vocation because for exactly the reason that it it can raise the stakes so much for your work and right, not just in academic theology, but in academia more broadly, there's a strong sense of vocation. I take a strange comfort in knowing that in 1917, Max Weber, in his lecture on vocation to basically graduate students in Munich, said that students would come to him and say, oh, well, what does it take to to get ahead in academia? And he says, well, you, you know, you tell me, like, are you able to endure seeing one mediocrity after another promoted over your head without becoming embittered and warped. And (laughs) he said, like, yeah, the students always say the same thing. It's like, oh, of course, you know, I mean, I live only for my vocation. Like that's, that's all that matters. But he says like, he has seen very few who are not damaged by that. When you stake your life on something that is so capricious and often unfair and Mm -hmm. really not up to you, like something like the academic job market, 
I mean, some people succeed really well on the academic job market. They wildly succeed. And it's often not easy to see, well, why did that person succeed? And this other person mm-hmm. who seemingly is so similar did not. And I mean, it's just it's just risky to stake that sense of your life's meaning on something that is capricious at worst. But I mean, it, even if we're not talking about a job in theology or academia, you know, it's something that is, that's basically a market, you know, yeah. it's like staking your life's meaning on the stock market or the housing market or something. It's just very risky to do that. And we should have other things that kind of allow or well what i think is that we should rethink what we mean by vocation so that it doesn't have such high stakes i talk with students about the idea of the universal vocation to holiness you know as it's framed in vatican II, and i try to emphasize one of the things this is pushing against is that holiness is only found in religious life and that sort of thing. And a deliberate lay person is also called to holiness in the same way that a monk or a sister or whoever else might be. But I also try to get them to see like that vocation is always going to be in some real sense embodied and sort of materially grounded. And you're going to live that vocation in a particular family when in a particular place and in a particular career in a sense, like not, not that it's the career that's the vocation or the place, but it's that these are the, the real context in which you are pursuing this call to holiness. When I'm saying that I know on some level, like I'm saying this to myself, that these things could be different and that wouldn't change. That wouldn't change the sort of ultimate, end of the vocation, even if the specifics might adjust. I think that's part of the challenge. I also think about, someone said this to me years ago, and I wish I could remember who said it because it's been lodged in my brain ever since, but that for them, getting tenure was the point at which they shifted from having imposter syndrome to survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And... (laughs) Uh, that I think that has stuck with me too. Because I know when I was an undergrad and we were starting to talk about graduate school and theology, and this is it's like, this is early, early 2000s. And they were telling us there's at best, you know, 12, 15 people applying for every job. So this is 20 years ago, right? Now it's probably at least 100. And, you know, me, 21 years old, on fire for study. Yeah, I'm going to beat those odds. Like, of course I am. And we all thought we did. And, and I did. And a lot of my cohort and my colleagues and whatnot maybe didn't. And even now, I find sometimes I'll talk to someone who's interested in graduate study and theology for to be an academic. And I'll try to give them as realistic a picture as I can without outright saying, don't do it because it's not my call. But I can often, I often get the sense that like, I don't know, <laughs> the, the stats on it become a challenge and not a warning, you know, I don't know what to do with that either, you know, for my own conscience. But yeah, yeah the, my very first religion professor at CUA, I had, I think a couple of other classes with him. So when it came time to apply to graduate school, I went to him for a letter of recommendation. And he did write the letter, but before he agreed to, he said, don't do it. <laughs> don't go to graduate school. Don't try to do this thing that I do. You know, go to business school, do something else where you can make more money. It'll be a much more secure thing. And of course, I didn't <laughs> listen to him for a second, you know, <laughs> um, and I don't regret going to graduate school, mm-hmm. but, you know, I mean, he was, there was wisdom in what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Wisdom I was not able to hear. And the thing is that, you know, a couple of years later, he went up for tenure and he didn't get it. He ended up landing on, I mean, more than landing on his feet. Like he landed on his feet and then into a very comfortable chair in an excellent place for him. But yeah, I had no idea what 
the private demons were of these people I idolized. You know, another of my mentors did not get tenure and had to move on. A third, I mean, these are the people who wrote my letters of recommendation that I'm describing. And another one, after, so I think after I graduated from college, he took on an administrative role and it was extremely difficult and politically extremely challenging. And he died very suddenly of a heart attack mm. at age 59. And none of that, I was in graduate school at the time that that happened, but none of that was visible to me. None of the challenges mm -hmm. of what their job was doing to their families or perhaps their finances or their health or, you know, any of that. I was so, and I think that that's, that's kind of the, I had such a strong sense. I, I did, I wouldn't have used the word vocation at the time, but I had this, yeah, this sense that, that vocation was this like one specific thing mm -hmm. that you are made for. And I think that like the the way that you are talking about vocation with your students to say, well, you know, the the vocation that we all have is the holiness. And that can be lived out in all sorts of different circumstances. Getting your dream job is not the only place where you can pursue holiness. And in fact, it can be an impediment <laughs> to mm you know, to the pursuit of holiness. So when I told my wife I was going to talk to you and that you wrote this book on burnout and we were chatting it, about it and I was mentioning you referenced like Graeber's bullshit jobs, which she just recently listened to the audiobook of. So she's kind of thinking about similar things. But she wanted me to ask you, because this is the question is always like, what's the fix, right? Like, what are we supposed to do? And so like, what, what would you say? The fix has to happen on... A few different levels. We typically talk about burnout as something that has gone wrong inside of an individual person and needs fixing. So the advice that is often given is, you know, set boundaries, learn to say no, you know, things like that. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's some value in that, but that's ultimately not going to be adequate to the problem. Because the origin of burnout is not something that goes wrong with you. So I've had, I had a shoulder injury from playing tennis. Something went wrong in my shoulder and it has taken a year to heal. Burnout isn't like that. Mm. Burnout is about the ideals that we bring to work and the reality of our working conditions. And so both of those need to change. And your working conditions are primarily set by your employer. So employers need to understand what people are expecting from the jobs that they do. And employers need to understand how much they are meeting those expectations. Now, some mm -hmm. of those expectations might be unreasonable and yet actively encouraged by the employer. So if an employer recruits, workers by saying, oh, come, come work here. We're like a family. Well, then those employees have a, a reasonable expectation that there's, go, you know, there's going to be familial type relationships within the workplace. If there aren't, if there's all kinds of, I mean, of course, families can be toxic too, but you know, if a, a workplace operates on rivalry and jealousy and patronage or something like that, you know, well, you, the employer, are not living up to the promises that you made. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that the fix has to happen on the cultural level. We as a society need to have different ideals and expectations of work. And I think that the starting place for that is with a better understanding of the dignity of the person mm -hmm. that we are born with all of the human dignity that we're ever going to have. And we don't get more, you know, we don't, we don't lose dignity when we lose a job. We don't gain in dignity when we get a promotion. 
we have the same amount and we have equal amounts of human dignity. And it's up to employers to recognize that and to provide conditions that honor the dignity of the people who are trying to carry out the mission of that employer. I'm teaching a course for men becoming permanent deacons this summer on on Catholic social teaching. And so we just recently were talking about Rerum Novarum and and Leo XIII, who I know you talk about in your book. And it's fitting hearing your response because it, it really is, whether intentionally or not, it's a very Catholic social teaching response, which is there are, there are systemic issues, there are communal issues, there are individual issues. All of these things are working in concert. And so there's not really, there's not the sort of technocratic fix of like, you change these three things and we're all good. There is this sort of, I, I don't know if it's a word that you would use, but there's a call to conversion at multiple levels that is needed to adjust you know expectations, both in terms of, as you say, ideals and actual conditions. Yeah. I mean, I think that the book... I don't know, maybe this is like in keeping with my earlier interest in secrecy, but I mean, the book is kind of like <laughs> low-key Catholic. It's not it's not being promoted as, as, mm-hmm. as a Catholic book. It's, you know, not with a Catholic publisher, but there are, I think, a lot of Catholic assumptions that go into it. And, and examples. You go to yeah. two different monasteries and uh, and all of that. So do you still think of yourself as a theologian? Not really, though, you know, if it's convenient, I will, you know, basically. To go on a podcast. Right, exactly. (laughs) No, I mean, what I mean by that is like, I, I mean, I love academia. It's, you know, I, I left full-time academic teaching and I missed the classroom. I missed teaching. I missed just like being on a college campus and belonging mm-hmm. to an academic community. And so I started, you know, teaching part-time as an adjunct. I mean, literally at the university is is nearest to my house, mm-hmm. Southern Methodist University. But I also, you know, I'm not writing, I'm not trying to write peer-reviewed articles anymore. But I mean, I I sometimes wanna participate in conferences. You know, I spoke at the virtual CTSA meeting a couple years ago. I went to the AAR in last November. And yeah, so just to the degree that I want to at least have one foot in academia, then I don't know. And if I have to call myself a theologian to do that, then... (laughs) I will. But, (laughs) you know, yeah, practically speaking, I'm not, you know, doing academic theology. I mean, I I don't teach theology. I teach writing. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, I mean, I'm definitely not keeping up on the literature in, you know, theology journals and stuff like that. I have no idea what the the main debates are. So, yeah, I mean, like I say, when when it's convenient, (laughs) I'm a theologian. No, that makes sense. I, you know, the... The occasional days where I think about, you know, should I be doing something different from what I'm doing? Part of the point of tension for me is like being a theologian and being a professor. And those things are, they're at least functionally aligned for me. And one thing I don't love about theology as a discipline is if you're outside of academia and you're outside of like formal ministry in some respects, there's actually not a lot of outlets for it. There's not like a theology incorporated that's hiring interns and that kind of thing. So there's a degree to which like, if I want to do this, I either have to do it in a school or I have to find some kind of freelance way to make it work for myself. And I just don't think I have that kind of gumption. (laughs) Uh, in the end. Well, I mean, in so. that respect, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. But in that case, yeah, theology is a lot like various arts, you know, jazz music exists almost totally within academia. You go to a jazz show and inevitably the performers are music professors somewhere. And similarly with poetry, there aren't a lot of people... Well, I mean, a lot of people write poetry, 
Sure. Very few people who are doing poetry as a profession are doing so outside of academia. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe theology is kind of like that too. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I think one of the reasons I decided to start doing podcasting again was this is an opportunity for me to do the kinds of things I like doing, even though they don't like not peer reviewed, doesn't really help my CV or anything like that, but it does help sort of sustain the excitement I have for the field. So that part's really nice, but yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's early days of coming back. So I, it's entirely possible. I'll get sick of it. <laughs> you never know. So, all right. Well, John, thank you so much for talking with me today. I know you have mixed feelings about podcasts in general, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that you would be on be on this one with me today. So. Yes. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that I, I, I do have mixed feelings about podcasts, but all of the podcasts that have had me on are the good ones. So it's funny how that works. You've got you just got great taste. That's right. Well, no, or or the hosts do. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It was a real pleasure. This episode of the Daily Theology Podcast was produced by Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't already checked them out on Spotify, go do that next. You can support the show by leaving reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us at Daily Theopod on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. If you'd like to become a patron, head to patreon.com slash dailytheopod. And if you want to buy me a cup of tea, head to ko-fi.com slash dailytheopod. Thanks, and see you soon.